Thank you, Stephen. If you've got a Bible, open it up. John chapter 1. And before we begin, let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the word who was in the beginning. I pray that from your written word, we would see the living word, Jesus Christ, more clearly. Please, would you do that for us this morning? Because he is our life and he is our light. So help us to see, to see him and to see all things rightly by him. And it's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So today we're beginning a new series. We're starting the Gospel of John. Now, in English, we use the word gospel in a couple ways. You can share the gospel with someone, and when we say that, we're talking about the message of how a, a sinful person can be reconciled to the living God. Through Jesus Christ, the perfect one, dying on the cross for sinners, rising from the dead, defeating death, and conquering our sin. That's the gospel. You can share that with someone. Everyone on this planet needs to know that gospel if they're going to know God gospel. The other way we use the word gospel is when we're talking about a, a narrative of the life of Jesus. So this is the story of Jesus's life. There are four gospels in our Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is John giving the story of Jesus's life. That's why it's called a gospel. And it's John's gospel because it was written by the apostle John, John the disciple. So it's not John the Baptist. John the Baptist shows up a lot in this gospel. It wasn't written by him. It was written by John the disciple. One interesting thing about John is that he never mentions his own name in this book. That's partly how we know that he wrote it. Because in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the disciple John shows up a lot. And you see him doing the things that whoever wrote this book is doing. So we know that it was John the disciple who wrote it, but he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Whenever he wants to refer to himself, he doesn't say John. He says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I don't think he calls himself that because he thought he was Jesus's favorite. That would be pretty lame. I'm the one Jesus liked the best. Everyone knows it. I just want it to be in print forever. I don't think that's why John's saying it. I think it's because this man was so struck by the fact that Jesus loved him that it dominated his identity. This man was not identified by his name, what he had done, what he had. His identity, when John thought about what is it that is most important about me as a person, it's that he loved me. That's amazing. And I hope that as we work through this gospel, we could all say the same thing. We could all say, you know, the most important thing about me is not what I accomplish in this life. It's not how much stuff I have. It's the fact that that man loved me and loves me still. It's an amazing thing that John calls himself the disciple whom Jesus 
love. Now, this gospel, if you've spent any time in the Bible, it's very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the events that are covered in those stories of Jesus' life, they're very similar. Very similar. You can read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you say, well, I just read that in Luke, or I just read that in Mark. And he says it a little bit differently, but it's the same story. John is a little different. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you start by knowing that Jesus is the promised king. And along the way, as you read, you kind of discover, wait a second, this guy is more than just the promised king of Israel. Could it be that this guy is God? And you're kind of discovering it alongside of the disciples. In John, he starts there. He says, just so you know, the story I'm telling about this life, he's God. John starts there. Another big difference is that almost half of this gospel is given just to one week of Jesus' life. Just one week. The last week. So in the other Gospels, you're reading three years of Jesus' life. In John, it's like he hits the slow motion button when you get to the last week. And you know, if you've ever watched a sporting event, when they hit slow motion, you can see things you don't see when it's happening full speed. And that's what John is doing. Because he wants us to know the death of Jesus is why he came. When we get to the last week of his life, John presses the slow-mo button so that we can see, yeah, this guy's death is why he came. It hangs over this entire book that this one is coming to die. John tells us why he wrote the book. So he gives us his purpose. If you've got your Bible open with you, turn to John 20. John chapter 20, verses 26 through 31. At this point in the book, Jesus has died, he's risen, and some of the disciples have seen him, but Thomas hasn't. And Thomas is like, I don't care what you guys say, I don't believe that he's alive, and I won't believe it unless I see him for myself. So that's what's happening here in John chapter 20, verses 26 through 31. Eight days later... His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side, where he had been stabbed. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then John picks up in verse 30 and he says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, 
you may have life in his name. So Jesus says to Thomas, you've seen me and you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. You might say, well, then how do you believe? If you've never seen Jesus, how can you believe in him? And John says, that's why I wrote this book, so that by what is written, you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. That's why this gospel was written, so that the people in this room, none of us who have seen Jesus Christ with our own eyes, might believe he is everything he said he was and is. That's the purpose of this book. So week after week, the application is believe. (laughs) Now, this could be preached really poorly. It could. Week after week, we could preach chapter one. This is what it says. Believe it. Chapter two, here's what it says. Believe it. That would be very bad, poor preaching. What John is doing in his gospel is he's showing us, look at who Jesus is. Look at him. Look at this aspect of who he is. Look at what he taught. Trust him. And that's what we're hoping happens week after week, is that we're getting to see a person. It's really different, isn't it, to think of salvation as trusting a few facts. Like, if I trust this thing, and I also trust this thing, and I also trust this thing, that unlocks the door to salvation for me. That's totally different than thinking, I trust him, him. That's how I'm saved is because I trust and know him, a person. And that's what the gospel of John is written for. And that's what we're praying is going to happen week after week, that by believing we might have life in his name. That's what we're going to see today, that life is in him. From the text that Stephen read for us, John chapter 1 verses 1 through 5. That's what we're going to look at. I'm going to read it again. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, Jesus' name is not mentioned until verse 17. If you've got your Bible open, you can see that. But we're talking about Jesus Christ. That's who John is referring to when he calls him the Word. And here's what we're going to learn about Jesus from these five verses. He's God. That's the first thing we're going to learn. He made everything. He's the word of God, and he has life in himself. And we're going to see not just those four separate things, but we're going to see, Lord willing, that together they make for the best news in the whole world. Jesus is God. Verse 1, in the beginning. So John The disciple, he wants you thinking Genesis 1, which Luke just read for us. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, who knows, what's the next word? God. 
in the beginning, God. But he tricks us, doesn't he? Because everyone who's reading this is going, in the beginning, I know, in the beginning was the word. Now, when you read Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God, and only God, as Luke told us, only God is there because nothing else has been made. When there's no creation, no universe, no spiritual beings made yet, who's there? God. And the Word. John's tricking us on purpose. How can this be? Every Jew would know, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. In the beginning was the Word. How can it be that the Word is with God in the beginning before anything's been made? He tells us the Word was God. The Word was God. Now, just from these, this first verse, we have two pillars that hold up our understanding of the Trinity. The Trinity. Trinity, by the way, means three in one. Three united, three in one. The word is with God from the beginning. So he's with God, distinct, and he is God. So how can you be with a being and be a being? How is that possible? What we need to see and what John wants us to see is that Jesus is distinct and he's one with God. He's distinct and he's one with God. Now, there are some people who will accuse Christians. They'll say, well, Christians made up the Trinity. Where's the Trinity in the Bible? And the word, if you look for it, you can flip in the back when sometimes you've got lists of words. Trinity's not in your Bible. So the accusation is because the word Trinity is not in the Bible, the Trinity doesn't exist. Trinity is a word that Christians use to describe what they see in the Bible. And what they see is this again and again. There is one God. One God. And the Father is God. The Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and they are not each other. Jesus is not the Father, and the Father is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. That's what you see again and again in the words. Think about Matthew 28, 19. This is Jesus at the end, before he's going up into heaven. He tells his disciples, listen, when you go, I want you to go throughout the whole world, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, one name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's really bad grammar, unless Jesus is making a point. He should have said the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, unless the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons in one God. That's what John is saying here. In the, the class we had before this service, 
we were saying, or I, we were talking about how in the Bible, there are lots of things that are in tension with each other. And you have to make a decision. Either I believe both of these things that feel like they're in tension, or I get rid of one or the other. John is either an idiot by writing, Jesus, the word was with God, and the word was God in one sentence, and I don't think he was, or he's saying something profound. Jesus was with God and was God. Has anyone in here ever met a Jehovah's Witness? Anyone in here? A Jehovah's Witness. No more hands. They will say that Jesus is not God, but he was created. Some Muslims say this as well. It's one of their arguments. And if you go to John 1 verse 1 with the Jehovah's Witness, they'll be ready. Every Jehovah's Witness you'll ever meet knows John 1 verse 1. They're not going to be surprised when you open your Bible and turn there. And here's what they'll tell you. Now, this is a lot of detail. You don't need to know all this. I just want you to be prepared because you will meet a Jehovah's Witness someday if you haven't, or you'll hear this argument from someone else. They'll tell you that in the original language, the Greek, there is no article, that's a kind of word, in front of God in the second half of verse 1. And so they'll say the verse should be translated, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Like, he's created, but he's like a super angel. He's really, really powerful. He's a God, lowercase g. This is not a good argument. You don't need to know Greek for this, but I just want to explain this so that you're ready. In English, we have two articles. The word the, like throw the ball, and the word a, or a, throw a ball. So one is definite. You're talking about a particular ball. One is indefinite. You can throw any ball, a ball. Greek only has one article. It only has one. It doesn't have two. JWs, Jehovah's Witnesses, are saying, if there's no article, then it should be translated a. Uh. Whenever you have a word with no article, it should be translated a uh, or a. But that's not how Greek works. It's not. The article being there or not being there doesn't mean that it should be the or a. Uh. In fact, just in these, so if you've got it open in front of you, verse 6, there was a man sent from God. See that? There's no article before God in the Greek. Jehovah's Witnesses don't say you should translate it. There was a man sent from a God. Verse 12, he gave right to become the children of God. There's no article in the Greek. And if you read a Jehovah's Witness translation, it will say he gave the right to become children of God, not a God. Verse 13, there's no article in front of God. Verse 18, there's no article in front of God. It's just not the way that Greek works. So I want you to be ready. You don't need to be able to understand how the Greek article works, but just be ready. 
When a Jehovah's Witness or a Muslim says to you, hey, it should be translated, a God, because there's no article, you know it's not the case. Now, we could go to other texts to show that Jesus really is God, like Colossians 2.9, in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. We could go to Romans 9.5. We could go to Hebrews 2.8, but we don't need to. We just need to keep reading. Verse 3, all things were made through him. And if you might think, well, maybe God made him first, and then he made everything else. John slams the door and says, in case you didn't get it the first time, without him was not anything made that was made. So think about existence. There are unmade things and there are made things. If it was made, it's because Jesus made it, which puts him on the side of unmade, creator. There's creator and there's creation. If you've not been made, you're God. That's what it means to be God. He's on one side and Everything else is on the other side of existence. Not God and God. He made anything that exists, and without him was not anything made that has been made. Jesus is God. And now we've moved into our next point. He made everything. Colossians 1.16 says this. For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus made everything. And that means he made you. He made you. This is where it gets a little more personal. He made you. And because he made you, because he designed you, he knows what you're made for. He knows exactly what you need because he designed you. He knows what will make you happy. He knows what will make you unhappy. He knows what meaning is for you. Designers define the design by the way that they make things. It's just how it works to be a creator. The same company that, make, that made the chairs that we sit on in my house also made the cups that we use. Now, one was designed to be drunk out of, and one was designed to be sat on. In some cases, they're made out of the same material. The designer defined the design by the way it was made. You can try to sit on a cup or drink off a chair, but you'll go to the doctor either way. We're defined by our designer. Meaning comes from the one who made us. Don't run from this. Please don't run from this. Our whole world is running from this. You were made by someone, for someone. Augustine said it this way, God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Any restless hearts in here? 
You were made by Jesus Christ. He designed you. We live in a world full of unhappy people telling us, you get to define what makes you happy. You get to define reality. You get to define your truth. You get to define your meaning, your sexuality, your purpose. But Jesus made you, and he knows. He knows you, and he knows what you're made for. He didn't just make you. He made everything. Just consider that because we're going to walk through this gospel, and there are going to be times where Jesus looks very earthy because he's really a man, fully God and fully man. But you should remember the one we're talking about made everything that exists. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is also the word of God. So we're backtracking here and just asking the question, why does John call him the word? Out of all the things that John could have called him, why does he call him the word? Some people will say, well, John's writing in Greek. Greek thinkers used this word, logos, to talk about the reasoning, the logic, the inner life of God. And John is obviously gifted in Greek. He's obviously an intelligent person. But I don't think that's mainly where John is getting this from. Just consider who John was. He was a Jew. Consider what the word meant for Jews, for a man who was steeped in the Old Testament. Consider in John's understanding the place of the word in the history of the world. Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Genesis 1, which we read, how does God make everything? his word. The word creates. The word of God creates. God's power comes through his word. Jeremiah 23, 29, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? If you want to think about how does God's power meet his people, it's through the word, his word. The word is how he provides for his people. Deuteronomy 8.3. Moses is talking to the Israelites and he says, God humbled you and he let you hunger and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You want to know how God provides for you in particular? It's through his word. That's how he sustains his people. And ultimately, his word is how God makes himself known. 1 Samuel 3.21, the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Hebrews 1.1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to us, to our fathers, by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. 
So John calling Jesus the word is him saying, this one is the one who created everything. This is the one through whom all of God's power and provision for your life comes. And this is the one through whom you may know God. That's what John's saying when he calls Jesus the word. Marvel with me for just a second that God is a speaking God. Consider that. God who has always been, always will be, cannot not be, who has all life in himself, is a speaking God. So much so that one person of the Trinity can be called the Word. God is fundamentally relational. Just consider that when you think about who our God is. He's a speaking God. He's not a hermit. He doesn't stay closed up in his room by himself. He loves to communicate. And that's why any of us or anything that exists is here. Because that's the kind of God we have. He's a speaking God, so much so that one person can be called the Word. Here's our last point. Jesus has life in himself. This is verses 4 and 5. In him, the Word, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So up to this point, verses 1 through 3 are not necessarily good news. It's not necessarily good news that the Word is God, unless you already know Him. If you already know Him, you love that Jesus is God. It's not necessarily good news that He made everything. You may not like the way He made things. You might hate this world and its design. It's not necessarily good news that he is the communication of God. What's God going to say? But here's where it all comes together. What God is communicating is life and light. The word has life in himself. Do you see that in verse 4? In him was life. So he has life in himself. You don't. You do not have life in yourself. You don't sustain yourself. You do not supply all the energy, the flourishing that you need. Flourishing, life, energy, thriving, growth, fruitfulness, fullness is in him. It's in him. That's what John's saying. John's not saying Jesus is alive. That would be true of everyone in this room. He's saying there's something different about his life. Life is in him. Everything the universe needs, all the energy, every star needs to glow is in him, in this one. That's who we're talking about. And his life is the light of men. It's the second half of verse 4. The light shines in the darkness. So 
So imagine, use your imagination right now. Imagine that right now, as you're sitting in this room, all the lights in the world go out. In the entire world, there's no light. Not like a little, you can kind of see the shadow of your hand in front of your face. No light. From this moment on, what would happen? What would happen? Just in this room, it would be pure chaos. I mean, we might sit silent for a second. Do you think you could find your family members? Do you think you could make it home? No light. Just imagine what would happen outside. I mean, chaos. People are driving. Planes are in the air. No light. No one can see a thing. It would be total lostness, darkness. Your best bet would be to stay where you are and hide. Hope you could grope your way around to find some food. It would be a dangerous, lost, fear-filled existence. That's what it would be if there was no light. That's the spiritual reality of mankind. John, in his gospel, uses the word darkness. He's talking about evil. So throughout this gospel, he'll say, there's light, there's dark, there's light, there's dark. And when he talks about darkness, he means evil. Satan's evil, the forces of evil, but also our own sinfulness. And the reason he calls it darkness is because at its core, our sinfulness is a blindness to the life-giving light of God. At its core, that's what our sinfulness is. It's a blindness to seeing he's got the life. And so we search everywhere and anywhere to just scrape by a little life for ourselves. We can't see he's the one who's got it. That's why sin and evil is called darkness. What would it be like if you could survive a week, a month? No way. What would it be like for one morning the sun to rise? It would give you a little picture of what Jesus has done for our souls. That's what John is saying. There is no light apart from this one. He has life and light. Verse 5 ends this way. The light shines in the darkness... And the darkness has not overcome it. John is hinting at what's coming in this gospel. We said at the beginning that the death of Jesus hangs over this entire book. He's hinting at what's coming. Jesus, who has life in himself, is coming in order to die. That's what he's coming to do. He's coming to take our darkness on himself, go to the cross, and die the death we deserve for our darkness. And it will look like the light of the world has been snuffed out. That's what he came to do. Until three days later, he rises. And the light shines never to be put out again. That's why he came. The light of the world came to be overwhelmed by the darkness so that he might defeat it from the inside. And he's the only one who could do it. 
That's why he came. The darkness has not overcome the light. What kind of darkness are you in? Really, just reflect. Is your total life darkness? You're just groping around for a little bit of happiness, a little bit of meaning, someone to give you a little affirmation so you feel like you've got meaning in life. If that's you, there's light in this man and nowhere else. Is there darkness in your thought life? Some real dark things going on in here that no one else knows about. Some really dark things I do or say in secret. There is no darkness too great that this light cannot overcome it. He has defeated it by dying for our sins. That's what I want you to hear. There is no darkness, no darkness too great for Jesus Christ to forgive or to heal. So whatever it is, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, come to the light. It's the only place forgiveness and healing is found. We mentioned before that it says in verse 4 that the life is in him. It's in him. This is so important, guys. Jesus Christ does not have some substance called life that he keeps in a bottle and he puts in his cabinet. And every once in a while, he'll give you a drop if you beg enough. If you want the life, you don't go to his cabinet. You go to him. In him is life. That's what we want. We want to be as near to this man as we can possibly be in this life. Because in him is life. And someday you and I are going to die or he will return. And for those who are trusting in his life-giving light, we get to live with him that's what he's come to do. That's why he's the light of the world. John 1, 1 through 5. Just take all of this in as good news. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that has been made. In him was life. And his life is the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray. There's no one like you, Jesus. Fully God. Creator of everything that exists. You are the communication of who God is to sinners like us. And in you is life and light. Oh, God, thank you. That's who you are in Jesus. I pray that you would help us in our darkness come to you. That our deep desire as a church, together when we gather to go through the Gospel of John and individually as we're out in the week, that our desire would be to be near you because there's life in you and nowhere else. We bless you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.